You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Thanks, Martha. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, there's a variety of people in this room, and I have no idea what is going on in everyone's mind, but my hunch is, for many of us, there's many things to be stressed and worried about, many distractions. There's many of us just wondering about this whole Christianity thing, wondering what it means to follow Jesus. Many of us just consumed by routines, and this is just yet one more. Some of us who barely made it here this morning, our Heavenly Father, we're asking you, because of your kindness to us in Christ, to send your spirit upon us and interrupt our minds, interrupt us from our ways of thinking, 
that in being interrupted we might lay hold of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, afresh. And in seeing Jesus Christ and hearing this, your word, we find ourselves caught up with passionate obedience for Christ. It's in his name we ask this. Amen. Amen. So for the summer, as our normal routines are interrupted and we kind of wait for the school year to come, I thought it would be good for us as a church to reflect on this little book of Jonah, which I presume many of you know something about. Um, We know very little about Jonah. He is mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, uh, chapter 14. He prophesies a bit after Elisha, who we just uh, learned a bit about. And he prophesies during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II. While Jonah's prophesying, uh, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom in that civil war, their days are numbered. Uh, They've got six kings left, which were going to come in somewhat rapid succession before they are brought into an exile and they no longer uh, exist. Uh, Why I thought it would be good for us to read this book uh, throughout the summer, in some ways I'm preaching mostly to myself, is uh, this book has been used by God's people for, for over a thousand years, thousands of years, as a reminder for God's people to see the very heart of God, to understand what it means to be his people and to follow after him and to to reflect and bear his image well into this world. This little book, this prophet, has given people uh, in all kinds of places around the world in all kinds of times a reminder of who our God is and what it means to be his people. And I thought as we go through the summer, I realize people are in and out. You might catch one or two of these sermons at least for me, as I think of preparing these sermons and as I think for you, this, this book is for us a good reminder of who our God is and what our priority should be as we think about what God has called us to do in this city and the type of church we've been called to be. I don't know if this pandemic is ever going to end. Uh, it seems like the news media has a vested interest in it never ending. But whatever it means uh, to be a, a sort of post-pandemic chaos church, I think this book is going to give us some kind of wisdom as to what it looks like to move forward into this new world. It's understandable that for the past two years, most of our Christian life and most of our life as a church has been, how do we survive? How do do we make it through a season where we don't know if it would be wise for us to ever see someone face-to-face for a while, for fear that we might spread a disease? We've moved past that phase. There's still higher than ordinary risk of gathering. But I think this book is going to give us a reminder of what God has called us to do, what God wants us to be as a church, And we're going to see it as we begin first to see his heart and what he expects of those who follow him. So here's how I want to look at this incredibly vulnerable story, this incredibly vulnerable first passage. I want to look very closely at the heart of God. I think this is the first thing I want to focus your attention on. Then I want to look at the propensity of God's people. There's a certain propensity that exists in Jonah that exists in each one of us that's seen in this passage. And then finally, I want to enter time looking at the pursuit of God. And here's my hope. In this passage, you're going to see afresh who our God is and be reminded what it means to follow him. And for some of you, to stop running away from what he's called you to do. So first, let's look at the heart of God. Where do we see anything about the heart of God? Well, this passage begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. God speaks, and what does he say? He says, arise, Jonah, go to that great city of Nineveh, call out against it, for their evils have come up to me. 
Now, in some senses, this provides the basic setting for, for all, of which the, all of where the story is going to take place. This gives you kind of the background, but this isn't an insignificant uh, little throwaway phrase. When the Lord speaks, it means someone needs to listen. But there's something incredible that the original readers especially would have picked up on right away of how the Lord calls Jonah. We find that Jonah is called to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And that means very little to you because very few of you fear the wrath of the Assyrian Empire. But the Assyrian Empire at the time was the largest superpower of the day. They had already come and caused terror inside the northern kingdom. And the kings of the northern kingdom had to pay some kind of uh, extortion tax to keep the Assyrians at bay. They were an unstoppable force, especially for a tiny nation like the northern kingdom. Not only, though, were they the superpower of the day, they also were incredibly brutal. I won't gore you with details, but they were notoriously talented at filleting human beings and draping their skin in neighboring nations to remind their people of what they were capable of. These were a horrendous and feared people. And if that wasn't bad enough, they made it their mission, their goal, to weed out the worship of other nations' gods. Their god and their emperor was to be elevated and raised above all. Their very existence as a nation was to squash worship of tiny nations, which would be a small thorn in their side, like Israel. And God says to this prophet Jonah, at a time where they are looming, casting a shadow over the nation, just waiting at any second to wipe out the nation of Israel, God says, Jonah, man of God, my prophet, go right to the heart of power of that nation that exists in part to destroy worship of me. How does God see the city of Nineveh? Well, it's clear he doesn't see it the same way Jonah does. But what do we read? We find something almost impossible, something that would have been so frustrating to the original reader as we learn about Nineveh. Because how does God describe Nineveh? He says, that great city. There was no need for a ruler to make red hats that said, make Nineveh great again, because even the God of heaven and earth agreed it was a great city, unlike other cities. Nineveh. This great city, we read about it, we'll read this phrase again in the book of Jonah, and we'll get some conclusions at the end. When our Lord looks down from heaven, he sees Nineveh as a great city. Now, what does great mean? I'd love to tell you that the Hebrew word, uh, you know, gives us an exact referential to understand what we mean when we say this is a great city, but the Hebrew word is about as vague as the English word. We don't exactly know what we're referring to when we hear that it's a great city. Later in the book, we get hints that it's an extraordinarily large city with tons of civilization and animals. But what I think we see in this particular passage is that when God looks down from heaven, and he looks even at this nation that hates and despises him and that wants to wipe out his people, he can't help but see their prominence, their ingenuity, their importance, the flourishing of culture and of humanity. And he can't help but describe Nineveh as a great city. You see, we see something of the heart of God. The enemies of God's people. What does the Lord see? They're still treated with incredible value. Incredible dignity. But there's a tension here because it's not just that the Lord sees this great city with all its dignity. He also sees, maybe we could say, some danger 
that exists in this city. What does he say? There's evil that has caught his attention. It's come before his eyes. His patience has run out. And so he decides, this great city, facing great danger, he will give his word to one of his people to go rescue this great city. He doesn't will that any should perish. We know this elsewhere in the Bible. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that God sees and looks down from heaven a city like Nineveh, a city, a city that unbelievably cruel and yet a flourishing point of society at this time and sees it with this incredible dignity and this incredible danger? Why does this matter? Because when God sees the city, what happens in his heart? Maybe we could say he's filled with compassion. If he just saw the danger... It would, hard to, it would be hard to uh, describe our Lord as compassionate. And if he just saw the dignity and just ignored the fact that danger is looming, it would be hard to describe him as compassionate either. But, uh, either. but as our Lord looks down from heaven on this culture, he sees a great city and great danger. Now, I hope it goes without saying. I know some of you have neighbors and friends and coworkers, sons, daughters, who you really wonder... Lord, what would it take to convince you? To, to, I'm begging you, these are good people. I love these people, Lord. What, what would it take, Lord, to convince you to send your spirit to convict these people of their sins? To rescue them. To help them know the hope of Jesus Christ and to live with a future in mind that the Lord will make all things right and that we can trust our safety is secure because Christ died for us. Lord, what would it do to make you move from heaven for the sake of my daughter? For the sake of my parents, for the sake of my neighbor. This passage gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And there is no way, with as much compassion as you have in your heart, that your compassion in any way matches up or lines up with the compassion our Lord has. He sees our great city. The flourishing, the high rises going up, the music played down at Jasper's. He sees this. And in your heart when you say, Lord, don't destroy a place like this. These are good people. I love these people. Look at how beautiful it is. He sees. But he doesn't just stamp an endorsement. He also acknowledges that there's danger. And so he sins. How would this make any difference to us? Maybe I'll just be, I don't know if I'm going to be very clear today. I've had quite the week. Um, maybe maybe I'll, I'll make the point this way. My guess is that some of us in this room feel that we are under an intense amount of pressure. Uh, an enormous pressure builds up when we're around our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our families, when we're at school. This pressure builds up to look at our city through the lenses just of this dignity. And we find ourselves moved towards only being able to see what's going on in our city and in the lives of our neighbors and only being able to affirm all that we're doing, okay? So our instincts are to say, that is beautiful, that is good, that is true. This is wonderful what is happening in this city. And our biggest fear, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is that anybody would come into the city with the destructive force of fundamentalism and begin to pronounce judgment all around our city. We think, please don't do this. Don't, don't take this route. And we feel tremendous pressure to endorse and get behind all that is taking place in our coworkers and our neighbors around us. Do you feel this pressure or is it just me? Like, there's pressure to put a different flag out every stinking month, you know, to be on, on with some kind of particular movement. We could call this the pressure to affirm, to affirm the dignity, and it's a good pressure. It's not a bad pressure. But still others of us 
filled with righteous and holy zeal at our best, find ourselves concerned for the compromising of our faith, fearing that our faith will disappear into the world and never exist as it ought to, driven by fear and concern, see the danger constantly. And we want to constantly promote resistance and corrosive worldliness, okay? I hope I'm not alone. I hope you're feeling this pressure to, to, to either affirm constantly or to warn constantly of a danger. When we see the heart of God, we see that he can do these two things at the exact same time. He doesn't have to go one or the other. He doesn't have to just put out the flag or, or join the social movement, the hashtag, without also sending someone to warn of the great eminent danger that is coming. This is our Lord's heart, and this is the heart that he would like to see pushed out, rolled out into a city like ours. Listen, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, if you feel caught in this tug of war, don't for a second think that God exists to be some kind of cheerleader, to provide for a second for every progressive agenda that is put forward in our city. But don't also for a second think that the God that we find sending Jonah to Nineveh is the same God that is promoted in some of these fundamentalist cultures that exist simply to chastise people. He sees the great city. He warns of its danger at the exact same time. He sees truly and in love he moves towards. This is the heart of God that motivates him. It's the heart that he hopes will motivate his church. I could say so much more. I hope I'm making some sense. But whatever we think about what God is calling us to do into our particular city, we must remember his heart. He looks down from heaven and he says, this is a great city. I, I, I love watching these sports leagues go crazy. I love watching the restaurant scene. It's beautiful to watch the way all these people live together, the engineering genius that takes place. He doesn't see these things and simply despise. But he also, at the very same time, knows this city is in danger. And it's that heart of compassion that motivates and moves him. And it's that heart of compassion, which we must pray, that grows deeper in us to be motivated and moved towards the city. This is the heart of God. He sees the dignity of danger of the city, upholds both, and in love he sends. Now let's look at the propensity of God's people. Where do we see the propensity of God's people? Well, we see it in how Jonah is, how he responds to God's compassion. Because how does Jonah respond to God's compassion? Well, Jonah doesn't just ignore God's voice. I was thinking about this all week, you know. One thing Jonah could have done is just say, I must have had some bad mushrooms or something. I swear I heard the voice of the Lord, but it wasn't, probably was wrong. It sounds crazy. He wanted me to go to those wicked people, so um, I'm going to change my diet a little bit get better rest, and see what comes of it. He doesn't do that. In fact, he flees. He, he, needed, he needs to go maybe a little bit north and a little bit east. By car, today you can make this drive from where Jonah lives up to what is now current-day Mosul, uh, to Nineveh, and maybe 15 hours by car. Jonah goes to a port city called Joppa. That's a good way to get away from the Lord's calling. He goes away from where our Lord has called him. And then from Joppa... He doesn't go to Crete. He doesn't go to Rhodes, some of these other cities. He goes to the very ends of the earth. When it says he goes to Tarshish, that is likely in Spain. It's, it seems almost certain now that that is in Spain. And while for you, you think Spain, great, tapas. You know, this is a nice culture. That is not at all what, what is going on at the time. In fact, this is the very ends of where the maps would have gone. No one goes beyond this. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that think there wasn't really any evidence of trade routes that go out that far. So there's a chance Jonah, being a somewhat wealthy man, because uh, we'll find out later how he maintains his wealth, 
uses all of his wealth to employ this ship to go all the way out to the very ends of the earth. He couldn't go any further. And if that wasn't bad enough, if he wasn't running from the Lord fast enough, a storm breaks out on the sea, and what do, you, what do we find Jonah doing? He's just gone down into the belly of the boat to go to sleep. He wants nothing to do with the Lord. He is getting as far away as possible. His heart has become passive and numb and hardened to the voice of the Lord. He hears and he knows he hears clearly and he says, I don't want to listen. Why does Jonah run? Now, I could speak way too long about this and so I'll be somewhat careful. It's tempting to psychologize why Jonah runs and to say maybe he's a racist. And usually when people say that, it's because deep in our own hearts we're wrestling through racism and it makes sense to impute that on Jonah. I'm sure that's part of what's going on. He doesn't like the people of Nineveh. He didn't like the Assyrians. He thinks his culture is superior. My hunch is we only learn about Jonah one other time in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. If you want to scribble it down, it would be worth reading about Jonah's ministry after service. But in there we find that Jonah had the unique calling of being a prophet to Jeroboam II. And one of the things Jonah prophesied was that Jeroboam II would expand his land boundaries back to what once would previously belong to the northern kingdom. And so what we learn and start to realize is that Jonah was a prophet who had good news. Who wouldn't have that news? Going to the halls of power saying, hey, by the way, I just want you to know. You know that land that you lost? Going, imagine him going to Ukraine. You know that land that lost? Well, the Lord has spoken to me, and here's the good news. You're going to take back all those regions. They're going to they're come back under your reign, during your reign. Not a bad gig. If you want to be a prophet, that's what you want to do. Be the one who's bearing good news. And you can imagine, in bearing good news, he was compensated probably nicely. He probably lived a very good life. However, in 2 Kings 14, we read, that Jeroboam II, though the Lord blessed him with this relative peace and land, he was evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He worshipped after the foreign gods and let false gods seep into Israel. And part of why I think Jonah is running away, I'm fairly convinced of why he's running away, is he knows something. He knows from verses like in Deuteronomy 32, especially verse 21, that God's patience would run out. And eventually what he would do is God would go to a people who are not his people and he would pour his blessings on those people, make them his people. Why? To provoke jealousy on his people. We read it clear as day in Deuteronomy 32. If you begin to worship false gods, I will go to a people who are not my people. And in doing that, I will provoke you to jealousy and that's how I will win you back. That's the Lord's technique. That's the Lord's tactic. Jonah knows this is what our Lord is doing at this moment. He knows he's going to Nineveh, and he knows he's going to have a good ministry. He knows revival is going to break out. He knows they're all going to repent, and he knows Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire is soon to crush the northern kingdom. And he does not want the assignment. He doesn't want to do it. I'll listen to you all day long, Lord, when I get to go to the halls of power and talk about prosperity and advancement and peace. I don't want to go to Nineveh, Lord. You know, I'll tell, I'll tell Torontonians all day long, the Leafs are going to win the cup. But I don't want to go, you know, to Montreal and say they're going to have a dynasty for 20 years, which is going to give the Leafs a series of first-round picks so that eventually they can win the cup. I don't, of all people, Lord, 
You've got to have to find somebody else. And he runs away as far as he can. What is this propensity in the human heart? What am I trying to say? I hope I'm making some kind of sense. I think you know it. You don't even have to be a Christian to know how many high-profile Christian names and celebrities have fallen from God's grace, it appears, have made a mockery of the profession of faith that they have, who have fled their assignment and turned to nasty means. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. The most imminent servant of God can become the most resistant very unexpectedly. Maybe I'll say it this way. The most called from God can become the most calloused in a matter of seconds. No one is immune to this. Think of all the heroes of the Bible, Samson, David, Solomon. I could go on and on and on. Never underestimate the propensity of the human heart to flee from God's calling when it doesn't line up with the desires of your heart. The human heart, it is so complex, and hear me closely. It is so complex even after you've tasted grace even after you've heard God's word of kindness towards you, even after the Lord has spoken to you and given you a clear calling, the human heart will run. Maybe I could say it this way. On the other side of dedicated energy and investment to the cause of our Lord, our hearts are more prone to run away than make another sacrifice. Sometimes it's easier to follow the Lord when he calls you to obedience in particularly hard times. But when it comes to the boring and the mundane, you and I know our hearts will be so quick to turn. There's a propensity in the human heart to abuse grace. To abuse grace. To know it well enough. To understand. To say, I know enough of God's character. I will abuse his kindness towards me. Do we understand this propensity in our human heart? Where is it right now that you don't want to obey? I know some of you are running. Some of you are barely up for breath right now coming to a worship service because you've been running so hard all week. Where are you running from our Lord's call of obedience and sacrifice on your life? Where are you running? If you're not running right now, will you join me in praying daily? Lord, keep me. Make me not an abuser of grace. This is the propensity of the human heart. Now let's talk about the pursuit of God. Because this story is filled, even this first chapter is filled with just such glaring, glaring irony. Uh, what is this portion of the story actually about? What are we actually reading about? God's pursuit of Nineveh? Not really. The whole first chapter is all about God's pursuit of one man, a prophet. And it seems to be an unbelievable waste of time. Lord, you got a whole bunch of people who if you spoke, their vo- spoke audibly into their ear, they would say, yes, Lord, and go to Nineveh. Why do you keep putting up with this guy? Move on. Let him go. Let him do his thing. Let him enjoy those tapas in Spain, you know? Let him, let him go make a house there. Be done with him. Well, that's not how our Lord works. What does he do? Well, our Lord acts gracious towards Jonah, but how does he do it? He does it in a way that you don't want to acknowledge, nor do I. He graciously pursues Jonah by sending a storm. This is a storm of God's grace. Billowing clouds, tempestuous. That's how much God loves Jonah. He's not going to let him go. He's not going to let him go away. This is, his, this is his prophet. This is his man 
for the job. Now, why is our God like that? Because, friends, none of you, none of you are qualified to join God in the mission that he's on in this world. None of you are qualified to give him, for him to give any attention toward you other than his anger and wrath. But in his kindness, in his compassion, in his love, what does he do? He showers you with grace upon grace upon grace. And if there's no possible way that you could be qualified, don't hint for a second that somehow you can be so bad to be disqualified that he will run out of grace for you. You can run on for a long time, but he's going to hunt you down. And he's going to hunt you down with his grace. He's going to throw storms in your life, and you're going to feel like all is about to end so that you can finally rest assured that you're his daughter, his son, that he's got you. You're fully forgiven. You can have hope, identity, purpose, future unending with him. This is how our God pursues. He pursues Jonah. And as he pursues Jonah... What do we see happening as a byproduct? Even in Jonah's disobedience, Jonah becomes a prophet who shares the word of the Lord to these cursing sailors. (laughs) Because who offers up right worship at the end of this chapter? Who makes vows? If you have your Bible open, you'll see the word Lord is in caps. It's the sort of covenant given name of our Lord, Yahweh. They, They worship Yahweh. Jonah becomes a missionary An evangelist, one sharing the faith through his disobedience. It's through his disobedience all these sailors are put in a place where they rightfully worship God. This story is all about how our God pursues. God's compassion towards Nineveh doesn't stop at Nineveh. It includes his deep compassion towards Jonah. What I'm trying to say is this. You were never qualified to be a recipient of grace And quite frankly, until you can look in the mirror and realize that your track record the past couple of weeks doesn't qualify you to receive the continual kindness of our Lord. And yet he looks down from heaven and he so loves you that even when you're running the other way, he'll send a storm in your life to keep you close. That's how he pursues. His compassion never ends. It goes to the sailors, it goes to Jonah, it goes to Nineveh, it goes to you. And friends, we know this. We know this with a measure of certainty. And I'll wrap it up with this, because some almost 800 years after this story, we'll read in Matthew 12, one of the gospel stories about the life of Jesus. We'll read that someone greater than Jonah has arrived. And where Jonah understood that the only way to provide salvation and life for these sailors who were kind to him, the only way he could heal them is by throwing himself into a storm to quell God's anger and wrath, so also one greater than Jonah will voluntarily jump into the storm of God's wrath that peace might come into the world. Just as Jonah volunteered and was willing to die, one greater than Jonah who will come, who will volunteer, and who will die, though being the only human being who didn't deserve death. And just as Jonah's refusal to obey one command of God resulted in him being forced into death. Our Lord Jesus will obey every command of our Lord. There won't be one that he abstains from obeying. And yet he will willingly give his life, his good status, his good standing before the Father. He will sacrifice his life that full and true and final forgiveness could come 
for you and for me and for anyone who might turn their heart to him. So what am I trying to say? I hope I've given some thought as you think about the mission our God has us on. When he looks at your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, people you play sports with or recreate with, he sees them with great dignity, but he also acknowledges they're in great danger. And he wants to give you the heart that he has towards them. And he sends. He's ascending God who sends people out to share this good news with them. And he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And the only way we're going to get this right is if you remember the propensity of our heart and the way in which God relentlessly continues to pursue us. Even this last week, he didn't let you fall. He brought you to this place. This is the God we have. So in conclusion, if you're running, you just ask why. You can't outrun the grace of God. You can't outrun the grace of God. It's coming for you. So why don't you take him at his word when he says, Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me pray. Our Father, I don't know what stands before my sisters and brothers this week. Some have very, very difficult things they're running away from. And it's going to take a strong, strong, assuring measure of your kindness and grace towards them before they'll ever before they'll ever move towards the difficult callings that you have for them. And Father, some of them are in the throes of a storm. In fact, right now they can hear the ship breaking up in their lives. Father, remind them that Christ took the full and final storm and that this isn't a storm of your wrath, but it's a storm of your discipline. And you discipline those you love. Father, for all of us this week, we're going to interact with people who have gone through hard times, people who are lost and confused and clueless, but people who have bearers of great dignity. Make us agents of your kingdom to share Christ's love to all those we come in contact with this week. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.